Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and today we'll be talking about Russia, its role in Syria, its relationship with Iran, and how Russian President Vladimir Putin may be thinking about the outcome of the U.S. presidential election in November. Our guest will be Max Suchkov. He's a senior fellow at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. He's an expert at the Russian International Affairs Council, a non-resident scholar at the Washington-based Middle East Institute, and he's the former Russia Mideast coverage editor with El Monitor. My conversation about Russia with Max Suchkov after this short break. Russia's own kind of leverage with Iran, again, as seen in Moscow, is gradually increasing because of, of the sanctions and because of this uh, arms embargo that was discussed in the UN Security Council. Uh, and as you know, Russia stood strongly for this embargo to go away because it thinks it can occupy the, the biggest, uh, or I wouldn't say this, it, it will be the single uh, arms uh, supplier. Uh, it will most likely compete with the Chinese there, but Russia thinks it can occupy a very important niche in the in Iranian arms market uh, once the, the, the embargo is lifted. There is still, I would say, cautious optimism uh, if, if that may be possible if Trump is re-elected, and I would say very blunt skepticism on, on the prospects of such cooperation if Biden is elected. There is a view that if, if Biden is elected, the Biden administration may be more hawkish, may be more uh, responsive to you know the provocations and other things happening in Syria, may be more willing to... Uh, you know, invoke military option and uh, maybe more rigid in its standing that Assad should go and things like this. That's Max Suchkov of the Moscow State Institute of International Relations, who is our guest today on On the Middle East. Now, our conversation today with Max comes as Russian Federation Deputy Prime Minister Yuri Borisov and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov were in Damascus this week where they met with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and others. For Russia, Syria is a success and linked to its global and regional ambitions. Assad is still in power and unlikely to be leaving soon. U.S. sanctions on Syria are in place and are going to stay there as long as there is no political transition and Assad is in power or radically changes his ways, which is unlikely. And those U.S. sanctions will limit any Russian-backed reconstruction or economic project that will keep them very much small-scale endeavors. Now, Moscow is also weighing in Syria whether to back the Syrian government perhaps another final assault to retake Idlib province in northwest Syria. That province is held mostly by the terrorist group Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, HTS, or Liberation of the Levant in English, and other armed groups opposed to the Syrian government. 
The trick in Idlib is that such an assault risks escalation with Turkey, another Russian ally, which has military forces in the region and which has clashed with Syrian forces. Now, despite differences, the Russian, Turkish, Iranian diplomatic grouping in Syria, they call it the Astana Group, remains committed to backing Assad and opposing the United States. East of the Euphrates, U.S. and Russian forces have clashed in a crowded space in that part of Syria, which also includes a Turkish occupation zone, areas controlled by the primarily Kurdish Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, which was the U.S. partner on the ground in Syria in defeating ISIS. And there are also Iranian and Iranian-backed forces there, as well as Syrian government troops. Risks of escalation there remain high. Now, to sort out Russia's serious strategy and what it means for U.S.-Russian relations, we will now turn to my conversation with Max Suchkov, who is joining us from Moscow. Max, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back with All Monitor. Uh, it's good to be talking with you. Let's start with Syria. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was there this week. He met with President Assad and others. Among the topics were economic agreements, but it seems given the U.S. stance, there'll be no reconstruction as long as Assad is in power and the political process is stalled. In addition to U.S. sanctions and what the Trump administration has called uh, the summer of Caesar, how do you see Lavrov's visit and how this is all playing out in terms of Russian interests in Syria? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, the, the Lavrov visit, even though Lavrov was not formally the head of the delegation, the delegation was led by the Deputy Prime Minister Yuri Borisov, who is uh, in charge of this kind of uh, Russian-Syrian economic dimension, which is which is a, an important indicator of uh, what the delegation was seeking in Damascus. Lavrov's own visit was uh, the first in the, in the, in 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 eight years, and I think you know it was symbolic in a way that a lot of people have been asking the same question all over again. Now that Russia, quote unquote, won war, can it win peace? And I think that was supposed to mark an important milestone and kind of a next stage of Russia's president, Syria, that would refocus from the military engagement to economic engagement. As to the question of how that may, may come about, how that may happen, uh, Moscow is coming out of the, uh, of, the, of the picture that is now, you know, Syria is kind of uh, in, which is Syria was hit by four major uh, factors in the last in the last year, uh, the impacts of the coronavirus, the neighboring crisis in Lebanon, which you know put additional burden on Syrian economy, uh, the conflict within elites, uh, the continued defragmentation, and the U.S. Caesar sanctions came came on top of it as an additional kind of deterioration deteriorator, uh, and kind of complicated the picture. So when Decision-makers in Moscow, you know, sit around the table and think what should the next steps be. They uh, basically, I would say even in some time in December, the idea was that there is either kind of a, an extensive quote-unquote strategy, broader strategy that would imply involvement of large state companies 
and you know under down directives from the Kremlin to you know push through the sanctions and 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 do some reconstruction and investments or the kind of an, a more narrow approach where small companies run primarily by oligarchs or say cronies around Putin circle would be uh, doing the same work because most of them are under sanctions anyway and they kind of uh, less risk averse than the big state corporations. So I, it looks, uh, including from the Lavrov visit, that this is kind of the, the path where that Moscow chose to go uh, and uh, the agreement that all of the kind of most of the discussion was evolving in Damascus it was the one signed in 2018 between Russia and Syria and Lavrov and Borisov uh, recommitted uh, Russian stance in restoring about 40 infrastructure facilities in Syria. Most of them have to do with the hydroelectric stations uh, that, you know, back in the day, the Soviet engineers uh, helped design and construct. So that'll be uh, a, a most uh, of the effort would be directed to that. And of course, uh, the other things, it wouldn't in, in include uh, Russian investments. So I would say, even though they're, they're minimal or say not at the level that they would have been otherwise, you know, if the Europeans and Americans uh, were on board, the idea was to kind of what the Syrian foreign minister Malim said, the idea is to break through the quote unquote sanctions blockade. And uh, that is kind of one big picture thing. And the second one is, of course, the um, political design. Uh, Lavrov visit, Lavrov's visit came uh, days after he met, he met with the uh, Gear Peterson in Moscow. And, you know, this idea of that the Constitution Committee doesn't really uh, go anywhere. There is little progress. And I think there are two things very important mentioned uh, during the visit. One, that the presidential election in, in Syria that are scheduled for next year should not be linked with constitution with any progress in the constitutional committee and the second one that there are no specific uh timeline you know points or there's no specific timeline for concrete questions to be achieved within this constitution committee this is kind of the position of the syrian government that russia supported which pretty much give you a sense that there's unlikely to be a major political change and that means you know the Europeans and Americans are very unlikely uh, to, to, to be doing anything in terms of uh, reconstruction or investments, uh, whereas uh, the Chinese and the Gulf monarchies are likely to be more cautious about how they approach the investments because of the sanctions. Max, some U.S. officials have begun to talk about divergences in the Russian and Iranian positions in Syria, that perhaps these can, these differences can somehow lead to a convergence of U.S. and Russian interests in seeing Iran withdraw Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups from the country. Is this a realistic possibility for U.S. policy, and how deep are these Russian-Iranian differences in Syria? Well, as you know, uh, Russia and Iran do not ever discuss their disagreements on Syria in public. And, and even in Damascus, there was not a single statement that would you know, suggest that uh, Russia is in conflict with, with, with Iran in Syria. Uh, but as, as you 
mentioned, uh, there's definitely this kind of, uh, you know, this disagreements and different interests pursued. I think Russia for now thinks it's in a better position in terms of uh, what it can offer economic-wise to Iran. Uh, also, the conflict of elites that I've just mentioned before uh, it makes it theoretically, again, as far as, 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 as Moscow is concerned, uh, Assad wanting to clinch more to Russia than to Iran is kind of, his options are limited. And there is a military option, an economic option that Russia can deliver where, where Iran cannot. And he's kind of traditional balancing, you know, between or, you know, kind of wagging the tail of, of both Moscow and Tehran in, or beating each other against one another. So that game will definitely or most likely continue, but uh, Russia thinks that, that Assad's maneuvering on this is, is rather limited for now, uh, that, that at least with what can do. But Russia's own kind of leverage with Iran, again, as seen in Moscow, is gradually increasing because of, of the sanctions and because of this uh, arms embargo that was discussed in the UN Security Council. Uh, and as you know, Russia stood strongly for this embargo to go away because it thinks it can occupy the, the biggest, uh, or I wouldn't say this, it, it will be the single, uh, arms uh, supplier, uh, it will most likely compete with the Chinese there, but Russia thinks it can occupy a very important niche in the in Iranian arms market uh, once the, the, the embargo is lifted. And, uh, you know, that is kind of one incentive, again, as, as, as seen from Moscow, for Iran to uh, be more cooperative with, with Russia, including on Syria. You know, uh, some say that the difference conceptually is that Syria, uh, I should say Russia, supports the Syrian state and its institutions more directly, Iran, as it does in Iraq, as it does in Lebanon, also supports sub-state actors such as Hezbollah in Lebanon or the uh, popular mobilization fronts in Iraq. Uh, is that Part of the difference, or how, what exactly are they in dispute about? Because they both support Assad, and I would assume both see this as a successful uh, effort in keeping him in power and thwarting U.S. interests in the area. Right. Well, I don't disagree with that uh, assumption. I think Russia's interest is kind of broader in a link to its uh, kind of uh, global role. Whereas Iranian, you know, interest in, in Syria is primarily that it, uh, in its kind of regional uh, ambitions. And so for Russia to be a quote-unquote a constructive global power, it does need to be bringing different parties on board. It does need to be uh, showing, uh, you know, creative diplomacy. It does need to be showing uh, things like, you know, that it can... Uh, manage its its proxies or allies effectively uh, and I don't I definitely don't know whether it was communicated to Assad in Damascus during the Lavrov Barista visit but I would say there is kind of a growing uh, consensus in Moscow that if Assad does not embrace reforms he will end up pretty much with a little money and only with with part of Syria and, and he won't be able to get the entire control of, of all of the country that, you know, that as, as he wishes. Uh, but in order to do that, there is also, I think, a, a feeling in, in, in Russia that uh, 
you know, the key thing that needs to be reformed for any other reforms to continue successfully is the reform of the security apparatus, where Iran definitely has a strong uh, voice and, and, and presence and influence. And, and, and where this is where I think kind of the, the biggest differences are because they will, the, the security apparatus and, and, and how it is reformed and what it's going to look like in the quote unquote new Syria is going to uh, probably not define Iranian presence in the country, but have a lot of impact on, on Iranian presence in the country and, and, and Russia's interest as well. I would also mention that, you know, because of the Turkish presence in Syria and growing presence, there is a feeling in Russia that ultimately the things that Russia needed to achieve in Syria in terms of its interest and presence in economic and, and security and the presence in the Eastern Mediterranean have been uh, primarily achieved. And all these kind of territorial disputes and other things that, you know, and that the, the part of Syria that Turkey continues to uh, kind of occupy, this is a bigger problem for Iran rather than for Russia. So you would see, and Iran has been keeping a rather kind of low profile on these issues up until now. Uh, so I think in Russia's view, uh, this is kind of a big picture thing that will most likely play out between Iran and Turkey in, in some time in the future. What about uh, Assad in this configuration? When I talk to uh, Russian officials and interview them and Russian analysts, I always get the impression that Assad is seen as a difficult uh, partner and ally, whereas when you talk to other analysts uh, in the region and elsewhere, some say that Assad will basically do what Russia says. Uh, how do you see that relationship with Assad in particular? Well, you know, I, I don't think these two narratives are mutually exclusive, to be honest, because I think there are no easy counterpartners in, in that part of the world any, anyway. Uh, and Assad, of course, has been a very, uh, I want to be, I want to find a right word, maybe sly or new, you know, how to play uh, external actors, including against each, against one another uh, to stay in power. Uh, and I think, you know, him being, being there and, and doing what he's doing is are kind of a marker of, 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 of his abilities to do that. Uh, I think there is little illusion in Moscow about Assad's kind of commitment uh in in terms of you know there was one question that once i think a french journalist asked putin uh something about assad uh, and putin kind of you know smirked and said well don't ask me this question about assad's relationship with the west because he was a more frequent guest in western capitals than in russia before the syrian crisis happened so i think it, it's kind of it, it gives you a, a, a clue that, you know, Russia's view on Assad is that he aligned with Russia because he had no other option, you know. And and this is kind of, you know, you know we're, we're talking about uh, marriage of convenience, a popular metaphor to describe by the Russia's relations with Syria, with Iran, or with Turkey. I would say that marriage, as in case with Turkey, actually also hinges on, on the kids, you know, and, and by the kids, I mean the kind of the joint projects that Russia and Syria and Turkey for that, in that sense, also invested in, and in case of Russia in Syria, 
that is, of course, the commitment, the public image, uh, something that you know Putin personally very much appreciates, no matter how the bad guy is. If he promised him something, if he claimed to be his ally, he will continue to be invested in that person and stay with that person regardless of the potential reputational losses. You know, that happens in Russian domestic politics, that happens in Russian foreign policy as well. So I think while, you know, he's is, is an uneasy partner, uh, as long as, as he goes along the way with the Russian agenda and, uh, you know, Moscow, you know, adopts his own agenda, something that I mentioned before, you know, in terms of political reform and, and constitutional committee, uh, they, they should be uh, fine with each other. Even though I don't exclude that it's, it's in some point in the future, if, if, you know, after perhaps election, presidential election in the United States, if, for instance, there is a second Trump term, uh, there might be, uh, and, you know, Moscow hopes for another quote-unquote deal with the United States and Syria, there might be a situation where Russia, uh, you know, asks kind of a soft-faced transition, asks Assad to accept a soft-faced transition to someone else, you know, some, some kind of a successor that, you know, Syrian elite uh, can agree to, that different factions in Syria can accept, and maybe that can be more or less acceptable to, to the uh, outside world. Uh, and that perhaps will signal kind of a new uh, stage in the Syrian uh, a Syrian crisis and the Syrian settlement. Max, we've uh, written in a monitor about the two fronts in Syria. There's Idlib in the northwest and the areas east of the Euphrates, some of which are under control of the primarily Kurdish Syrian democratic forces. Let's start with Idlib for a minute, which the province is mostly controlled these days by the terrorist group Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, liberation of the of the Levant or HTS, and which earlier this year saw fighting between Turkish and Syrian forces. Now, Turkey is an ally of Russia in the Astana group. There are Russian-Turkish joint patrols along a strategic highway there. And Russia is also backing the Syrian assault on Idlib and expects Turkey to deal with HTS. Very complicated situation, not to mention the humanitarian aspects of this, where since the offensive began last year, close to a million people have been displaced, many killed. How does Russia see the situation in Idlib being resolved, given the complexity and tension between Syria and Turkey? You know, with all these developments that you've mentioned, I still get a feeling that there, there has been little progress on Idlib ever since uh, the first kind of Russian-Turkish memorandum on Idlib was signed, was signed uh, two years ago uh, in the sense that, you know, it is still uh, an area largely outside the Syrian government control. Uh, it's still the area that is largely, uh, you know, run by the HDS, except for perhaps there are a lot more uh, pro-Turkey factions in the area now and that, you know, Turkey has strengthened its positions in the area. Uh, and that I think, in, 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 you, you said Turkey is an ally of Russia, I think there is kind of linguistic nuance, very important, but it's also important for political reasons. You know, Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, once described 
Turkey as an ally, but not necessarily a partner of the United States. And I think in case of Russia, it's just the opposite. It's definitely a partner, but not an ally. And that kind of interesting but important distinction in the sense that Russia does not expect Turkey to behave in an allied manner. And still there is a lot of kind of uh, distrust in the relationship, of course. Uh, but at the same time, it thinks that, you know, uh, the relationship with Turkey is important uh, and goes way beyond Syria, of course. As I mentioned before, you know, there are tons of things like uh, Turkish Stream, the Akuyu power plant, the Russian participation in the Turkish military modernization, and, and which as 400 missile system is a part of. So I think uh, strategically, Turkey sees Russia as a kind of uh, multiplier of its own ambitions as a, as, a, as a regional power. And Russia needs Turkey as a multiplier of its own or enabler of Russia's role as a, as a, as a global power. So that relationship, and of course, there is a very strong personal relationship with Putin and Erdogan, strong in the sense that, you know, the two men pretty much speak the same language of power and, and pragmatism, border and cynicism. Uh, but they, they kind of, you know, speak in, in this in, in, or see the world through the same lens. Uh, there are different views inside Russia on what should be done next. There, there, there are some factions that are uh, calling upon decision makers to support the Syrian drive to kind of, quote unquote, settle the issue militarily, meaning to support you know, a military offensive and crush HTS and whatever. Uh, loyal Tur Turkish group th there. There are others who say in the military option will trigger a military clash between Russia and Turkey uh, that is not in a Moscow or Ankara's interests. And uh, the Moscow just should, should come to terms that Ankara is there to stay and it's better to kind of outsource all those groups to Ankara's control, but, but meaning that Turkey is going to be in control of that part of Syria for, 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 for years to come because Turkey is taking a much deeper presence there through you know, schools, for monetary system and other means. And there is little that Russia can do other than exacerbate its relations with Turkey. So if it's not willing to do that, it will have to accept it as a reality, even though there is all this talk about you know, Syrian territorial integrity and things like this, that nominally Russia and Turkey support. Uh, so yeah, I think Idlib is a, is a, is a, is still big unknown. Uh, for, for now, however, I would say a lot of attention, especially in the re, in the in the recent few uh, weeks, have been directed to uh, Russia's efforts to do something in the east. And by doing something, I mean there are still two tracks that you know uh, we've written about uh, back in the day that Russia supports. Uh, on the one hand, this kind of the, the, the track between the, the Kurds, different Kurdish uh, tribes and groups, and Damascus with the same message, you know, trying to convince the Kurds to, to align with, with, with Syrian officials and, and, and instill the thinking that Americans are not reliable partners anyway. Uh, and there is the track that is now you don't really hear much about, but it still hasn't gone away from, from you know, uh, from being considered, which is Russia mediating between Turkey and Syria. But again, like I said, it's still kind of uh, Putin hibernation mode for now.
but there is this big issue, of course, with the American presence that Russians still trying to figure out what to do. The United States cannot be driven out militarily. Uh, it, it, it cannot be driven out militarily with mercenaries because we remember what happened in February, uh, what was that, 20, 2017 or 2018, when the U.S. killed a bunch of Russian mercenaries uh, with the Air Force. Uh, so there are, there are all these kind of provocations once in a while, uh, even though, you know, this deconfliction channel is still operating, there are these provocations uh, that are meant to uh, make the life of American troops uh, a little more difficult than, than it is now. Uh, and, and, you know, because hope thinking that there is no kind of strategic plan for U.S. presence other than you know, take control of oil uh, reserves and strip Assad of, of revenue and make uh, the burden on Russian on Russian supporting the Syrian regime even harder. Max, let me ask you a big picture question about Syria uh, with regard to how it plays into the U.S.-Russian relationship. Does Putin see Syria as a means to thwart U.S. goals and interests in the Middle East, or does he see it as perhaps at some point an opportunity to engage the United States, as Russia had suggested at the beginning of uh, the Trump administration term, in counterterrorism, for example, uh, and to try to get sanctions lifted? Do you see, or is it a little of both? Well, I think initially or or the primary impulse for putin was to have for, to have syria as a, as a place uh, for a, you know discussion with the dialogue with a kind of great big power game uh, or big power deal with the united states you know putin was the first the, 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 when he came to power in early 2000s he was the first to call george w bush uh, to condole, to express condolences on the you know, 9/11 terrorist attacks, and also you know he thought that the counterterrorism was pretty much you know a very important uh, agenda for two countries, and as U.S. and Russian relations uh, you know kept sliding into uh, new lows, you know counterterrorism has remained uh one of the few options or if, if if not the only option together with the arms control that moscow still thought they can be progress in and you know when trump was elected uh the three intelligence chiefs in, uh, went to washington with the same agenda again and even when russia took the decision to intervene in syria in the fall of 2015 putin's uh, speech at the u.n general assembly was themed with the idea of you know appealing to the Americans, let's have this kind of grand anti-ISIS coalition that will resemble anti-Hitler coalition of World War II, and you know fight this common enemy together. But then, since nothing worked out of that, you know he thought that you know Russia then should be refocusing on partnering with regional heavyweights, Turkey, Iran, and others. And you know, playing its own game and 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 kind of uh, including you know part of that game was the game of denial. You know, even though, regardless of whether Americans pursued any specific interest in Syria or were there just you know to uh, not rush to to not let Russia do something, as many in Moscow think, 
the idea was, uh, you know, we will play this kind of the game of denial and, and, and not allow Americans to do whatever they want to do. Uh, now, I think, we, and, and then again, when, when Trump came to power, there was this big hope that something can work out of that. But then because of the collusion and interference and other things, and the, uh, it, it never worked out. Uh, and now there, there, there's kind of debates in Moscow on whether there might be a new chance for this kind of cooperation or a quote-unquote big deal in Syria, because it will ultimately also please Russia's kind of deep interest in, in you know, positioning itself as a superpower on the world stage, you know, having this big debate with the, with the United States as a sole superpower. And, you know, uh, there is still, I would say, cautious optimism uh, if, if that may be possible if Trump is reelected, and I would say very blunt skepticism on, on, on the prospects of such cooperation if Biden is elected. There is a view that if, if Biden is elected, the Biden administration may be more hawkish, may be more uh, responsive to you know the provocations and other things happening in Syria, may be more willing to. Uh, you know, invoke military option and uh, maybe more rigid in its standing that Assad should go and things like this. As we uh, approach the U.S. presidential election in less than two months here in the United States, there's uh, increasing concern about a Ru the Russian information or disinformation campaign. What are the Russian objectives during the U.S. presidential election in terms of its information warfare? Oh, it's hard to tell. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would say, well, again, uh, there are different streams, streams of thought, right? Uh, those who think or those who perceive uh, the United States as an adversary, uh, they still think on, on, you know, on whether... Uh, kind of in inflaming or fueling the current uh, hostilities that are in the streets of America or kind of, you know, driving more wedges in this kind of uh, cleavages that there are in American society may be a good strategy, you know, to make the life harder for the United States, to make the United States focus on its, uh, you know, own domestic problems, and that'll make the U.S. less willing to engage abroad there are others who say, well, maybe, you know, uh, the, the idea should be that we should be supporting Trump and uh, then, you know, his policies will make America, you know, focus on its own efforts and, and he's more anti-war. So he's not willing to engage in kind of foreign, foreign uh, interventions and that's, that may be good for, for Russia. But there are others who are saying, well, maybe, you know, uh, it's, it should be the other way around. Maybe we should be thinking more about, you know, engaging with the Democrats and, and, and supporting the Democrats, hoping uh, that, you know, if, 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 if Biden is elected, there are more kind of interventions in return to kind of uh, mid-2000, late-1919 American-style diplomacy that will diminish America's image in the world furthermore. So these kinds of things, but these are, these, you know, they're different groups. And as it, from as an outsider, you may think that, you know, the Kremlin uh, or say Russia is, or whatever happens in Russia, whatever the discussion in Russia is just, you know, Kremlin centered and, and, and it's not. There are more factions definitely involved in, in the foreign policy debate. Well, def, of course, in, in, the, in, in the system like Russia, 
Kremlin is the one uh, making the final shots. Uh, but you know, there even even in the Kremlin, the people who thought that you know engagement with Trump may be a good idea, now say you know it it's just the choice between the two evils, perhaps in the sense that you know the Trump administration imposed more sanctions than the Obama administration, so Trump didn't come out to be the, the best option for Russia, as opposed to perhaps a kind of a, a general American narrative. Whatever the strategy is in terms of the information warfare campaign, uh, does President Putin and others in the Kremlin take satisfaction in, in sowing dissent in American politics? Is that not an objective in and of itself? Well, perhaps it may be an objective in and of itself. Again, if it's, it's hard to say uh, what Putin has come to think of the United States. It's hard to say whether ever since 2016 was Trump, when Trump was elected, Russia still expects uh, quote unquote a grand bargain with the United States as, 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 as an option or the, or Moscow just gave up on it, uh, you know, kind of altogether and, and thinking that we should be, you know, focusing on, on cooperating with, with the Chinese and then, you know, just our business with America, which should only be, you know, fueling the flames of domestic protests and things like this. Uh, I, I would think that the the general expectation, that's actually what I was going to say in my previous remark, the general sense is that there is little, there is unlikely going to be a major change in U.S.-Russia relations, at least for the better, regardless of who occupies the White House uh, because, you know, if, if, if it's the Democrats, the idea of this information in, in, in election interference and uh, disinformation campaigns will, will still, uh, you know, be an important agenda for them. So it'll be hard to do any diplomatic engagement or other talks, perhaps other than nuclear arms control. Uh, and, 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 and there's a general sense that there is, there the Russian-American bilateral agenda has exhausted so much that there really isn't anything to talk about other than, you know, to defend against each other's uh, political or cyber attacks and things like this, which is very unfortunate, I think, and very dangerous for, for, for the two uh, big nuclear powers, uh, definitely. Max? Thank you for a rich discussion of Russian foreign policy in Syria and the Middle East and U.S.-Russian relations. It was a pleasure to have you today on, on the Middle East. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. We will be right back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, 
where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Welcome back to On the Middle East. Many takeaways from our conversation with Max Suchkoff. But let me just focus on one. That is the concern about Russia's information warfare during the U.S. presidential election season. First, the threat of cyber and information warfare is growing exponentially. There are no rules and endless possibilities for havoc and disruption. The prospect of what are known as deep fakes and other false stories can be impactful, especially because of social media, because news events or videos can go viral before the sources are verified or discounted. Second, we also don't want to hype the threat either. Putin's penny stock investments in Facebook ads and Twitter bots and posts should not come close to bringing Americans to panic, nor it seems should his media interventions at the margins of social media play a role in persuading someone to vote for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, who are both well-known commodities in U.S. politics and offering the United States very different policies and directions. Perhaps instead of alarm, messages of reassurance that Americans in their electoral systems are up to the test of this presidential election. And that reassurance would be combined with the necessary vigilance to be sure that Putin and others who may seek to disrupt our election process are prevented from doing so. Third, while the U.S. will need to continue to maintain and expand its edge in information cyber warfare technologies, there will come a point, hopefully in the next administration, whoever wins, where there will be negotiations about the rules of the game in cyber as there was with nuclear weapons and as there has been with ballistic missiles. This is overdue. Otherwise, this threat, both perceived and real, and the real threats are getting even more dangerous, all of this can blow up faith in one of the most fundamental of America's institutions, its electoral system and elections. And that's a victory we don't want to hand Putin or anyone else. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.